So we are starting this amazing new chapter, chapter 35. And chapter 35 comes to address this fundamental question. And that is, if you look at the written Torah, you look at the oral Torah, you see such a great emphasis on practical implementation of mitzvot. What's stressed the most is actually carrying out the mitzvah physically. And then there's, to this end, we have all these technicalities and the details, how to do the mitzvah, and if it's done this way, and if it's done that way, and the time, all the particulars. But if you come to think about why we're born, why we're here in this world, obviously it's to have a relationship with Hashem. Isn't the internal experience much more important? It would seem that we're coming down here. We want to refine ourselves and become a proper vessel suitable for relating to Hashem. A very refined person who is elevated spiritually, and that should be of paramount importance. And then the actions are secondary. But why such an emphasis on practical fulfillment of mitzvot? It seems so not in line with what we know. And even if you look at the Pesukim of the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu tells us clearly that Hashem is asking us to have a relationship with him. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people. He says to the Jewish people, Va'ate Yisrael, ma Hashem el me'imach, ki'im li'ira es Hashem aleikecha, lelechas v'chol drachav, this means, and now, O Israel, what does Hashem your God demand of you? Only to fear Hashem your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to worship Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Obviously, from this Pasuk, we see this verse saying the main thing is have a relationship with Hashem. This is the most important. And only in the next verse does Moshe Rabbeinu continue to say, Lishmar es mitzvahs Hashem to keep the commandments of Hashem and his statutes. So again, the emphasis is have a relationship with him. What is Hashem asking of you already? To fear him, to love him, to serve him with all your soul. And afterwards he says, Keep his laws and his statutes. And if you look again, also in Chumash Devarim, Maish Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, Vayetzaveinu Hashem la'aseis as kol ha'chukim ha'ela liyira es Hashem. And Hashem commanded us to perform all these statutes to fear him. That means that the reason why he gave us these mitzvahs, it's a pathway to have a relationship with him. So why the emphasis on the details, the practicalities, when it's really more than that, much more internal? It's about a relationship with Hashem. It's about reaching ever higher. It's about spiritually re refining ourselves. And if you look at the Talmud, the Talmud says that the Torah is called Tara Ladarta, a gateway to the dwelling. That means what's the dwelling place? What's the destination? The destination is fear of Hashem. What's the way to get there? The Torah. So if that's the case, then why all the emphasis on practical implementation? And in fact, if you look at the Midrash, the Midrash says, The mitzvahs were given only so that man would be refined by them. So again, are the mitzvahs something an end for itself? Why all the practical, why all the obsession with the practicalities? Or is it something much deeper than that? And to solve this question, many commentators gave their explanations, really explaining this point, that mitzvahs are here to refine us. And if we look at the Sefer HaChinuch, one of the 
counters of the mitzvahs. He codifies Jewish law. There's, there are different rabbis throughout the generations who counted the mitzvahs. Everybody knows there's 613 mitzvahs, but how do we count them? So the author of the Sefer Chinuch writes, the reason why we're given all these physical actions is people's hearts are drawn after their actions. So ultimately the way we act affects the way we feel. And that's why we have all these mitzvahs because our hearts are drawn after them and it brings us to a relationship with Hashem. There's a story that is told to illustrate this point, which I hope is not a true story because it's somewhat terrible. <laughs> and it's about a man who hated his wife. So this man hates his wife, and this is back in the olden days where divorcing one's wife is just not in vogue. You can't do it unless there was a scandal. He's like, I can't stand this woman. I want to be rid of her. How do I do this? And so finally he decided he's going to go to the rabbi and he's going to share in confidence his problem. And he bears his heart to the rabbi and he says, listen, I hate this woman. I want to be rid of her. I cannot live with her anymore. And the rabbi said, really? You actually hate her? And he said, yeah, hate her. And the rabbi said, like that much? You said you want to be rid of her. You actually want to be rid of her? And he said, yeah, like that much. And so the rabbi thinks for a minute and he said, okay, I have advice for you. And the advice that he gave sounded very conniving and really not appropriate for a rabbi. And he said, listen, they say that if you pledge an amount of tzedakah, and you don't actually carry through, then the consequence of that is that the wife might die. So how about you go to Shul, you make this crazy pledge to Tzedakah, and then the year will pass, and you won't pay it up, and you'll have moved on. Do you think it's a good idea? And he said, yes, that's a wonderful idea. And the rabbi says, okay, listen, you go to Shul, and you make a pledge like that, and everybody knows that you and your wife don't have it so much together. And then what happens to your wife as a consequence of your pledge at Shul, people are going to start raising eyebrows at you. They're going to think that you actually had a plan. You can't do that. What you got to do is, look, it's just for a year. Remember, just for a year, you have to start acting as if you love your wife. So when you come home, give her a big smile. Ask her how she's doing. Ask her if you can help her. Buy her flowers. Can you do that for just a year? You hate her, but just pretend for the year. And when the year is over, you'll be done. I really don't like her, but you know what? For the year, it's worth it. And so he comes home and he greets his wife with this big, warm smile. Hello. She can't believe it. He never smiles at her and he never says hello. And so she returns the warm smile. And then before you know it, he's offering her to help. And then he's buying her flowers. And a few months into this, he comes running to the rabbi and he's crying. And he said, Rabbi, I made this crazy pledge to Sajaka that I cannot keep. And I love my wife and I don't want anything to happen to her. And the rabbi said, don't worry. You'll pay it up over many years. Your wife will be fine. What happened? He was acting in a way of love and it drew out the emotions that he actually did have for his wife. He married her for a reason, right? So our actions draw out our emotions. And this is what commentators say. The mitzvahs are there to draw out our emotions for Hashem. Ultimately, it's all about relationship. It is all about loving Hashem and fearing Hashem and serving Him with all our heart and soul. How do we get there? Through these actions that draw out our emotions. But if that's really the case, then it becomes very puzzling. Because the fact is that there are certain mitzvahs that if a person had no intention, but he fulfilled the mitzvah, it's counted for him. 
while if a person had the most lofty intentions but was prevented by forces beyond his control from actually fulfilling the mitzvah, he doesn't get the credit. Like take, for example, the mitzvah of matzah, Seder night. A person was a very spiritual person, very well-versed in the esoteric aspects of the Torah. Seder night comes and he is not able to get a hold of matzah. Think about the olden days in Russia or wherever. He wasn't able to get Shmur matzah. So his heart is on fire with love for Hashem. He is wishing to fulfill the mitzvah. He's thinking all the mystical intentions behind the mitzvah of matzah, which are huge, but he cannot actually eat the matzah because he doesn't have it. He hasn't fulfilled the mitzvah. Does he get credit? He gets credit, but he doesn't fulfill the mitzvah. Now take, for example, another guy who is steeped in all the material pleasures of this world, doesn't care about matzah. Seder night comes. Robbers break into his house and say, hey, buddy, you better eat this matzah or else. So he eats matzah on Seder night. And guess who gets the mitzvah? The guy who ate the matzah and not the guy who had the intentions for the matzah. So if it's only about bringing out our emotions, then the first guy who had all the right emotions should have been the one who gets the credit, who actually fulfilled the mitzvah. And the guy who ate the matzah with no intention at all, it was practically stuffed down his gullet, he should not get any credit at all. And that's not how it is. The fact is the one who actually carried out the mitzvah is the one who gets the experience of the mitzvah. That means that this closeness, the resting of the Shekhinah, is specifically contingent upon practical, actual implementation of the mitzvah. And that, it seems very puzzling. And this is what the author is going to explain right here in this chapter. So chapter 35, and there's quite the lengthy introduction. I'm going to read it here. Before beginning chapter 35, it will be worthy to note once again that the Tani is based on the verse for the matter of observing Torah and mitzvot is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Right in the introduction to his book, the Alter Rebbe says, here is, this book is written to explain to you this verse in the Torah, that the matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Meshur Benu is telling the Jewish people that it is very accessible. Everybody can keep the Torah in their thought, in their speech, and in their action. This verse asserts that the Torah is easily fulfilled through all man's three forms of expression, also called the garments of the soul, thought in your heart, speech in your mouth, and action that you may do it. In a deeper sense, in your heart refers also to the emotions of love and fear of God. They too are very near to you, easily obtain- attainable. Concerning the latter statement that love and fear are easily attainable, the Alter Rebbe points out earlier in Tanya in chapter 17 that this claim appears contrary to our experience. In fact, by no means is it an easy matter for us to acquire love and fear of God. He said, really, is it so simple for us to, to attain love and fear of God? This is contrary to our experience. Some people meditate and they don't feel. So he explains it and he says that the phrase that you may do it qualifies and describes the emotions intended in the word in your heart. Meaning, what sort of love and fear is very near to you in your heart? The love and fear which serve to motivate one's practical observance of the mitzvot. Even though such love and fear are not experienced in the heart as fiery spiritual emotions. 
Intellectual contemplation of God's greatness will lead one to an intellectual appreciation, love of God, and an awe, fear of him, which in turn will affect the heart. Since by nature the mind rules the heart, the heart will then be motivated and will resolve to do all the mitzvahs in the spirit of this love or fear. So the love and fear that's very attainable is not the love and fear that's experienced as a full-fledged emotion in the heart. It's the love and fear that motivates you to do it. The Altarber then went on to say that even a person who is not suited to such intellectual contemplation may also attain a love and fear of God by revealing the natural love hidden in the heart of every Jew. This love also contains an element of fear, the fear of separation from godliness. Thus, it is very near indeed and easy to serve God in one's heart, meaning out of both love and fear of God. Yet, we look at this verse carefully. We look at the wording. It is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. It is evident that however necessary the love and fear of God may be, the actual practical observance of the mitzvot is paramount. In the following chapters, the Altarebbe explains the superiority of the practical aspect of mitzvot over the seemingly more spiritual aspect. The Torah says like this, this matter is very near to you. In your mouth, beficha, and in your heart, uvilvavcha, to do it. So first of all, the fact that the verse ends in to do it means that this is the climax. The climax is to do it. But if you look carefully at the words, it says in your mouth and in your heart, and it doesn't say and to do it, it just ends off to do it. The fact that it's in your mouth and the fact that it's in your heart, it is ultimately to lead you to do it. That's the most important aspect. And that is very puzzling. Why is that the case? I'm going to skip the next two paragraphs of this introduction and we're going to get to the text of the chapter. Vihine, letaisefes beor tevas la asaisai. Let us elucidate still further the term that you may do it. In the verse, for the matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Whereas mentioned, the climax of the verse is its emphasis on action. Before we move into this next section, let's do an introduction, somewhat of a review of principles that we learned in the previous chapters so that we understand what's coming our way. Thought number one, there is the essence of the soul, the internal aspect of the soul, and there are the garments of the soul, the external aspect of the soul. The internal aspect of the soul, what makes the soul who she is, what gives her her essence and identity are intellect and emotions. That means the way we understand things, the way we feel things. That really is the essence of the soul. The true essence of the soul is undefinable, but the way we understand, the way we feel is so closely connected with who we are that for all practical purposes, we call this the essence of the soul, our intellect and emotions. Then we have the way we express our feeling and understanding. And that is through thought. A lot of people don't think of thought being an expression, but thought is an expression, and we'll talk about it. Through speech and through action. So these are external aspects of the soul, the way the soul dresses itself in order to express its essence. Thought, speech, and action. Thought is an expression. You think in a language. You are expressing yourself to yourself. When it comes to understanding, 
when you think something over, when you read something, and then you understand it, you don't think in a, you don't understand in a language. Understanding is way beyond language. It's somewhere that touches you very deeply because understanding is essentially part of who you are. Thought is a garment, and it could be changed. You can think one thing, you can change that thought, and think something totally different. And the same thing with speech. You can say one thing. And then you can go ahead and say something quite the opposite. And action, as we know, is external to ourselves. It's just something that we do to express ourselves out onto the world around us. So there's the internal aspects of the soul, which are intellect and emotion. There are the external aspects of the soul, the garments, which are thought, speech, and action. Most people cannot have any control over the essence of their soul. We're going to call most people the Benoni. In chapter 14, the Altar Rebbe said that the Midas HaBenoni, he Midas Kol Adam. The level of the Benoni is something that every person can reach. So this is within the reach of every person, whether or not we're actually a Benoni, we all have the ability to be a Benoni. A Benoni is somebody who does not have control over the essence of his soul. He does have control over the way the soul expresses itself, its garments. So that means that he can control which thoughts he thinks. He can control which words he says. He can control which actions he takes. However, the way he feels deeply, the way he understands, that is practically impossible for him to change. And that is as opposed to the tzaddik. A tzaddik, and these are very few, this is the minority of the population, has this ability to actually transform not just the expressions of his animal soul, but he can even transform the internal aspect of his animal soul so that he can take the animal soul and transform it from being an evil expression to being an expression of good. So now, being that the Benoni was created in such a way that he cannot change the essence of who he is, he cannot change the internal aspect of his animal soul, we have a startling question, an existential question. It's a question that everybody who's working on themselves is going to eventually have to ask. Let us also understand in a very small measure the purpose in creating Benonim, to be and remain forever on the level of Benonim, for as explained in chapter 14, the souls of Benonim are usually incapable of rising to the level of Tzaddik through their own will and effort. They were created to be Benonim. And the Altar continues to spell out this question. Also, the purpose of their soul's descent to this world, being clothed within an animal soul, deriving from the Klipa and Sitra Achra, the very antithesis of the divine soul. So this is the craziest thing. Very, very painful. How does a divine soul come to be down here? It is specifically clothed within the animal soul. The only way the divine soul can act out on the body, the way that she can think, the way that she can speak, the way that she can act, is through the medium of the animal soul. The divine soul is clothed within the animal soul. Now, 
That would be fine enough if they weren't so contradictory. But the divine soul is an expression of Hashem himself. And the animal soul is a concealment of that expression. So here she comes to me down, clothed within an animal soul. And you would think the reason why she's clothed within the animal soul is so she can transform it. But she cannot transform it. It's not within her capabilities. She comes down here. She's clothed within an animal soul that she cannot change. What is the point of that? A pure essence and clothed in something that defies her. And that's the reason why, and this is another painful fact, that if a person engages in sin, God forbid, what does she do? Takes her divine soul and drags her down with it. It's not just the animal soul that's sinning. It's a divine soul clothed within the animal soul that's powering the animal soul and defying her own self. What a painful situation. Even just to think thoughts, the divine soul must be clothed within the animal soul. Since they will not be able to banish the animal soul throughout their lives. They will never be able to transform their animal soul. Nor even dislodge it from its place in the left part of the heart. So the fact is, not only can't they totally banish the evil from the animal soul, they cannot even somewhat dislodge it. So here is the situation where the divine soul comes down to be in here in the form of a benoni. That means that it's out of her reach, out of this person's reach to become a tzaddik. Life will be a lifelong struggle, always battling against the animal soul, but never being able to vanquish it, not even being able to make some type of change, some level of transformation. The author asks the question, why? Why did they come down here? to be in this type of struggle within the animal soul itself and not be able to transform the animal soul. Now, we have to understand the difference between a tzaddik and a benoni. A tzaddik is a person who can struggle with his animal soul and overwhelm it in a way that now it loves Hashem. Let's look at the story of the famous Reb Levi Yitzhakmi Levius Bardichev was a person who was able to transform his animal soul to another force for good, which when the animal soul is transformed to another force for good, it's a wonderful force for good because it has a passion that the divine soul doesn't have. The divine soul is cool, calm, and collected. The animal soul is passionate. So Rebelevius Chachmi Bardichev, a great tzaddik, was once sitting waiting for morning to break so that he could shake the lulav and esrik because it's been a year since last Sukkot, and he couldn't wait to do the mitzvah. So there it is, sitting in his china cabinet, or whatever you want to call it. He sees it through the glass. He's waiting for morning to break so he could shake the lulav and esrog. Morning comes, and he runs to get the esrog, smashes his hand through the glass, bleeding, because he's in such a rush, he doesn't even see the glass. So this is somebody who took his animal soul and was able to transform it able to transform it to another form for good. Now, this has practical ramifications. The fact that the, the Benoni cannot transform his animal soul essentially means that he struggles with an everyday problem that he will not be rid of. How is this expressed? So that no evil imaginings rise from it to the brain. 
So we said that the Benoni is able to control his thought, speech, and action. When we say he can control his thought, he can only control which thoughts he chooses to entertain. But he cannot choose which thoughts pop into his head. And that is because since his animal soul is strong as ever, and it is still drawn after worldly matters. So what does a person think about? What thoughts just rise to a person's mind? The things that he desires, even if he doesn't want to desire them. So this Benoni doesn't want to desire things that he shouldn't, unhealthy things spiritually, but nevertheless, thoughts that he shouldn't have, unhealthy thoughts will pop into his mind because he doesn't have control over the essence of the animal soul. He's not held accountable for that. He wishes he wouldn't have those thoughts. He doesn't get to choose. Those thoughts come into his head involuntarily. What is he responsible for? The second that he chooses willingly to entertain that thought. That's when it becomes his responsibility. But as until he notices that he is holding a thought that he shouldn't, when it pops into his head, that's not his fault. It's against his wishes. He wishes he didn't have that thought. When does it become his responsibility? The moment he becomes cognizant of it. This is a thought I shouldn't have. He immediately gets that thought out of his head. Inasmuch as in the Benonim, the essence of the animal soul derived from the Klippa remains in its full strength and potency as at birth. Except that its garments, meaning its form of expression, as evil thought, speech, and action, do not clothe themselves in their body, as mentioned above in chapter 12, where the Alter Rebbe explains that by means of constant battle with his animal soul, the Benoni prevents the budding evil of this soul from expressing itself in thought, speech, and action. So the bottom line is a person is born with his animal soul. They grow and they mature and they think that they've done away with their animal soul or they tamed it. But no, it just changes forms. Rabbi Steinsaltz gives a very poignant example. He says, a three-year-old, what does he dream of? What is he jealous for? What is he running after? He's running after construction paper. Then as he gets older and his understanding of the world broadens, now he's running after banknotes. It's not that he matured. It's just that the objects that he desires have changed, but the nature of his relationships to objects has not changed and has maybe even grown stronger. And he brings commentary to the Mishnah. The Mishnah says like this, Jealousy, desire, and honor drive a person out of this world. And commentators explain that these three emotions, jealousy, desire, Honor represents different stages in a person's life. So when a person is a young child, they're mostly jealous. It's not so much what the other person has, it's that he has it. And he's consumed with jealousy. Why did he get this? And I want that toy. Why does he want that toy? He didn't want it a minute ago because the other kid wasn't playing with it a minute ago. Suddenly now he wants it because he's consumed with jealousy. As he gets older, it's not so much jealousy. Now it becomes desire, temptation. In modern culture, we call it 
hormones. So suddenly there's these burning desires and passions that he has to get under control. And those, those seem to wane down and get a little tame. But what comes up next? Honor. Suddenly he's chasing after honor. So the forms have changed, but the desire, the control of the animal soul has not changed. And a person thinks I've matured, but he hasn't matured. Yes, he progresses through life, but the animal soul is still controlling him. Now let's talk a little bit about the animal soul and understand what is its essence. The animal soul in its essence is not evil. This is something that the Altarber teaches us in a Hasidic discourse, that the animal soul itself is not evil. The animal soul is the power of desire. It's a pleasure seeker at its very essence. In chapter one, and this is something that the previous Rebbe points out, in chapter one, we learned that the animal soul has drives from the four elements, right? There was water, which was pleasure, and there was fire, which was anger and, and haughtiness, and there was air, which was boasting and empty talk, and there's earth, which was laziness and depression. So it gets these traits from all these different four elements of evil. But the previous Rebbe explains that essentially who it is, its makeup, it's what we call in Jewish philosophy, it's called chaymer, which means it's matter. What actual makeup is, is water. The actual makeup of the animal soul is water. It's drive for pleasure. All the other traits that it takes on, of fire and air and earth, that's already tzura, form, forms of expression. But who it is essentially is all about pleasure. So therefore, just like the animal soul right now desires things of this world, it could also desire holy things. As soon as it understands what's the most pleasurable, then it will go to the source of it all, which is Hashem. Nothing is more pleasurable than being close to Hashem. It's just that it needs to understand that. A chassid once said, if all the pleasure seekers of this world would know the pleasure that there was in prayer, they would drop all their pleasures and go run to Shul to Davin. Rabbi Steinsaltz points out that a little baby that eats garbage is not corrupt in her essence. Why is she eating garbage? Because she's corrupt? No, she didn't have education. Once she learns what's pleasurable, she doesn't eat garbage anymore. Then she eats things that are good for her and that taste better. The same thing with the animal soul. It's not inherently corrupt. Inherently, it's a pleasure seeker. Just like now it desires material things, it could be trained to desire Hashem, which is actually the source of pleasure. You know, people think of it like a deeply religious person, a holy person at Sadiq, and they feel bad for them in their heart of hearts. Gosh, they never get to go to the restaurant. They don't, they don't gamble. They don't do the pleasurable things that other people do, like they have no pleasure in life. Oh, no, no, we don't understand. Who is feeling the ultimate pleasure in life? It's the tzaddik. It's this person who has gotten to the root of all pleasure and feels pleasure in Hashem. And ultimately, every physical pleasure is a devolution of the ultimate divine pleasure. So a tzaddik has tremendous pleasure and so much pleasure that it translates to his animal soul feeling the source of all pleasure and only takes pleasure in Hashem. But for the rest of us, we don't get to do that transformation. And that is very, very painful because our divine soul is clothed within this animal soul that conceals the divine and will never be overcome by the divine soul. And it feels so futile. Why? 
However, since the Benoni succeeds only in suppressing the garments of the animal soul, but can never, despite all his efforts, affect any change in the essential evil nature of the animal soul itself, the question arises, and here's the existential question, and the Alterba spells it out. Why then did their souls descend to this world to strive in vain, God forbid, waging war all their lives against their evil inclination, yet never being able to vanquish it? What's the point? It feels hopeless. You're willing to work and work and work if you know you're making some change, if you know that you're producing something, but you're not willing to work and work and work and see no results of your efforts. It is so hopeless. It is so sad. It can really drag a person down. The previous Rebbe tells a story of a parrot, a landowner, who was once traveling and he sees this farmer working so gracefully in the fields, just his motions and the way he hoes and the way he seeds and the way he waters the plants, so graceful. He thought, I should like to have this man in my drawing room just to do those graceful motions. I'm going to ask him if I can pay him for that. So he stops his wagon and he goes over to the farm and he said, listen, I was watching you work and you work so beautifully. Your movement is so gracious. How about you come do that in my drawing room. How much do you make every day? And he gives him a number and he said, okay, you do that in my drawing room every single day for a few hours and I'll pay you that amount of money. And at first, the farmer was so excited. What a comfortable way to make a living. Just a few hours every day. A set salary, because you know it's a little bit more variable when you're actually selling your produce. Set salary, I come to his drawing room every day. I'm going to be doing these motions and I'll get paid. Wonderful. So day one, day two, day three, after a couple of days, he comes to the parts and he says, I quit. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going back to the field and I'm working on my farm. And he said, why? I was paying you so well. He said, but I don't see the produce of my efforts. We want to see the product of our hard work. Abedini comes down here and is struggling and not able to make a dent in his animal soul. It feels like, what am I doing this for? And this is a problem that many people have today in modern society. They feel like I do things and it doesn't count. It's worthless. It's like the difference of playing an arcade game and actually driving on the street. If you're driving in an arcade game, then you can run the red light, you can crash into all the other cars, you can drive the opposite way, you can go above the speed limit, and no one cares. Why does nobody care? Because you're not hurting anybody, you're not doing anything, you're just useless. It's all just one big joke. But when you're on the street, if you're going to run a red light, and you're going to crash into the other cars, and you're going to go above the speed limit, oh boy, a lot of people are going to care. You will get a ticket, and you might even end up in jail, because your actions matter, and so there are consequences. When a person feels like my actions don't matter, and there are no consequences, and nothing's going to happen from the things that I do, that will pull them down. And that's what the Altarab is addressing over here. It was explained in the previous chapters that the ongoing battle waged by the Benoni in preventing his evil inclination from asserting itself in thought, speech, and action causes prodigious pleasure above. How then can we complain that the battle is in vain? Yet were this divine pleasure the sole object of the battle, there would be no reason for having the divine soul clothed 
within the animal soul. On the contrary, the two souls ought then to be separate and distinct from each other so that whenever the divine soul emerges victorious from a particular struggle against the desire of the animal soul to act or speak evilly, it would then act alone without the participation of the animal soul. Since the divine soul is clothed within the animal soul, the objective obviously lies in perfecting the animal soul itself. From this perspective, the battle of the Benoni does indeed seem futile, since all his efforts have no effect on the evil nature of the animal soul. So we learned in chapter 27 that we cause tremendous divine pleasure every time we resist the animal soul. So that would seem to be the purpose. But the Rebbe asked this question. If that is the purpose, then they don't have to be clothed within each other. It doesn't have to be the divine soul clothed within the animal soul. They can act separately. But they're not acting separately. The divine soul is clothed within the animal soul. It seems to be there in order to be able to transform it. And yet it cannot transform it. And this aspect seems very futile. And so the altar is going to say, listen to me. I'm going to give you words of comfort to help you through this. Let this forthcoming explanation be their solace, to comfort them in a double measure of aid and to gladden their hearts in Hashem, who dwells among them in their Torah and divine service, meaning the explanation will show them how to find comfort and joy in the godly light that abides within them when they study Torah and when they engage in the service of God. So Al-Rabbis is going to say like this, I'm going to give you comfort. You should know that every time you practically fulfill a mitzvah, every time you're engaged in Torah study, you are experiencing closeness to Hashem, objectively. Find comfort in this closeness. There is something that's happening every time you study Torah. There is something that's happening every time you fulfill a mitzvah, and that is ultimate closeness to Hashem. You should know that even when you're not feeling it, subjectively, objectively, you are experiencing actual closeness. And Rabbi Steinzel speaks about this and brings it into a very clear distinction, which is very, very important. He says like this, In modern times, people place primary importance on the psychological influence and not so much on the truth of the matter. So what's actually happening doesn't concern them as much as what they feel is happening. And an example of this would be the experience of eating. So what's the act of eating for? The act of eating is so that we gain nutrition for our body. Coming together with the act of eating is the experience of eating, the pleasure of eating. Ideally, they should come together. So you eat something nutritious and you enjoy it and it's a good experience. But they don't always come together. So a person could be eating food that is nutritious, gaining nutrition from their bo- for their body and not enjoying that meal so much. Or... A person could be having the pleasure of eating, but gaining no nutrition from that act. Like, for example, a person will be eating cotton candy or garbage, things that are not at all nutritious, but they have this experience of pleasure, the pleasure of eating. And that's what's the most important to them. But no, that's not what eating's about. Eating's about gaining nutrition for the body. Most important is the objective truth of gaining nutrition. 
And it's really nice if you have the feelings and the pleasure, but sometimes they don't come together and we should never confuse the two. When a person is studying Torah, when a person is doing a mitzvah, objectively, the truth of the matter is they are experiencing supreme closeness to Hashem at that time. It doesn't mean we'll never feel it. Many times we do feel it, but many times we don't. We need to take comfort in the fact, to be cognizant of the fact that right now, even if we're not feeling it, we are experiencing it. And that is the most important. Rabbi Steinzel says a person has to ask themselves, what am I after? What am I trying to gain? Am I trying to gain the actual experience? Or am I trying to gain the pleasure of a representation of that experience, which is not the same. He said, if you want to feel closest to Hashem, even if you're not actually experiencing closest to Him, then there's drugs. And there's a whole industry of artificial experiences that a person can feel as though they are very close, but they're not close. Or a person can be doing Torah and mitzvahs. Hopefully they're feeling it, but sometimes they're not. But you can gain comfort in the fact, knowing that at that moment when you're studying Torah and that moment when you're performing a mitzvah, you are experiencing supreme, actual closeness to Hashem. And that's what's the most important. Can never confuse the two, the psychological influence or the actual truth of what's happening at that time. And that's where the comfort lies. The Altarebbe coming up is going to explain why it is that the Shekhinah specifically rests on a person when they do practical implementation of Torah. So let's summarize what we said until now. Okay, so what we said until now is, why is practical implementation of Torah and mitzvahs the most important? It would seem that the most important is the internal experience of relationship with Hashem. And then after that is the practical implementation, because that's after all what's there for. The practical implementation is to engender feelings in our heart. And then we're looking at the creation of the Benoni and we're asking, why was he created? What's his point? He comes down here, a divine soul, clothed in an animal soul that he cannot transform. And since he can never transform it, what is the point of being created in such a way? Why did Hashem create him in that way? And the altar was starting to give us an answer and tell us, you should know that in the actual experience of implementing Torah and mitzvahs, there is closeness to Hashem. Feel it or not, a person can go and serve a hungry person while they're grumpy because they're rushing to work and they happen to notice a hungry guy and their conscience says, I got to feed him. So he feeds him. At that moment, he's not feeling spiritual ecstasy. At that moment, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, I have to get to work. And he might be feeling guilty, I have to get to work. And why am I feeling that I'm feeling that I have to get to work? All those crazy emotions that could be popping in his head. But when he's feeding the hungry person, whatever he's feeling subjectively is one thing. Objectively, at that time, he is experiencing actual closeness to Hashem. And that's what he has to be cognizant of. Be cognizant of the fact that every time you study Torah and every time you do a mitzvah, no matter how much you've worked out internally, because most of it we will never be able to work out, so let's just come to terms with that now. We're going to struggle, and most of it we'll never be able to work out. But the experience of closeness is happening no matter what our inner chaos is. And next week, we're going to start delving into this topic more deeply with very interesting commentary from the Yanuka, the young child quoted in the Zohar. 
So I'm opening up now for questions and discussion. Yes. So I'm very happy you talked about this because uh, there is, uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of different mixed things going on out there saying, well, unless you, you know, you can daven, but unless you're really into it and connecting, you're not really getting anything out of it. Or if you do a mitzvah and you don't have joy with it, then it doesn't count. And all these things that are floating around, which just never made sense to me. So now you're really saying it doesn't matter because that part of you, that soul part is connecting with Hashem just through doing the mitzvah. Exactly. So that, that's good to know. Uh, the other question I had was the tzaddik. It sounds like the tzaddik is just born as a tzaddik. Is that true? It is true. He's born with the capability of being a tzaddik. So that means that he will be born with a divine soul and an animal soul and the capability of transforming his animal soul. He was created in that way. This is one of the questions that the altar asked right in the beginning of the Tanya. When he quotes Eov, Job, complaining to God and saying, You created tzaddikim, you created evil people, wicked people. What does it mean you created tzaddikim? Don't people have freedom of choice? Yes, they have freedom of choice. But Hashem gives certain people the capability from birth of becoming a tzaddik. And they are very few. Most people don't have that capability. Most people were born to struggle. And that the person who struggles and is constantly overcoming is a tzaddik in his practical behavior. If we're going to judge him, if he's a tzaddik or a rasha, he's considered a tzaddik. But from the terms of the Tanya, we don't call him a tzaddik. We call him a benoni because he still has the internal struggles. His, his reward, his achievement could surpass that of a tzaddik, somebody who's technically called a tzaddik. But in his inner makeup, he has the struggles all the time. And that's the Benini. A tzaddik is created that way. He could be a tzaddik. Benini is created that, forget it, <laughs> keep working, but you will not, not forget it. I shouldn't say that because the altar says, maybe, maybe, maybe you work hard enough. Hashem's getting impregnate impregnate the soul of a tzaddik on you. But that's that's a gift that comes later. So, 